But I think the more we keep an eye on community and find those safe people and find those safe groups where we can talk about our experiences and feel like this is a trusting, safe place where I can process my vulnerabilities, that's a huge, huge piece of this whole psychedelic movement, whether it's professional psychedelic societies or communities popping up like mushrooms, sorry, uh, you know, all over the place. And I've been to some psychedelic society group meetings that aren't for professionals. And, you know, some of them are kind of wacky and, you know, some of them are really cool. Like it really depends on the chemistry between the different people who show up. But I think community is part of that connective tissue. It's a huge piece of this, whether you're a healthcare practitioner or just somebody who's interested in psychedelics, whether you're 18 or 80 years old, it doesn't matter. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Rick Barnett. Rick is the founder of the Center for Addiction, Recognition, Treatment, Education, and Recovery in Stowe, Vermont, and the co-founder of the Psychedelic Society of Vermont. He is a clinical psychologist and licensed alcohol and drug counselor with a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. This combination of training, clinical practice, and education makes him uniquely qualified to discuss the emerging use of psychedelics in therapy and drug and alcohol recovery in the real world. There's a massive difference between the emerging quote-unquote psychedelic industry, clinical trials, drug development, policy reform efforts, legal retreats, and the reality of the situation outside of these contexts. This dichotomy is the most fascinating feature of this whole domain, in my opinion. While we wait for the FDA to approve MDMA, for the VA to implement clinical trials, for lawmakers and regulators to get comfortable with psychedelics as a new treatment paradigm, the use of psychedelics in unregulated, personal, and illegal settings is skyrocketing. This is where the quote-unquote psychedelic industry differs from so many other industries or technologies. There's a major distinction between the so-called above-ground, business and investment landscape, which is dominated by commercial drug development and services designed to fit into the modern healthcare system on the one hand, and the so-called underground on the other, a decentralized, unregulated, bottom-up psychedelic market. To my mind, there's no right or wrong here, but rather simply an increasing need for education, support, and community to midwife the mainstreaming of psychedelics. In this conversation, we discuss the integration of psychedelic, ecstatic, and expressive approaches to clinical practice in Western healthcare systems, the connective tissue of the psychedelic ecosystem, his experience responding to the cultural interest in psychedelics as a clinical psychologist, the importance of community among healthcare professionals to increase education and best practices, and his experience connecting with and educating politicians, regulators, and lawmakers. In Greek mythology, the god Hermes is said to have possessed the ability to move freely between different realms. He could travel between the immortal world, the divine world of Olympus, and the underworld. 
This capacity made him unique among the gods. As a trained psychologist, educator, and community organizer, Rick is like a modern-day Hermes, interfacing with the clinical and research worlds, as well as the local and digital peer-to-peer community networks of the psychedelic curious. And now I bring you my conversation with Dr. Rick Barnett. So you got in on Sunday, you said, yep. and you mentioned doing Stan Groff's breath work session on Monday morning. Yeah. Pretty intense. Monday and Tuesday. Monday and Tuesday. Two, two days. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the, it was a full two day workshop. Yeah. They had oh, like something like 28 facilitators. Stan was there uh-huh. and he was walking through the people breathing and Brigitte was there because he's you know going to be 92 yeah, yeah. and he's, he's getting up there, but he, the energy that he brought to it and, and to be in the presence of his legendary status yeah. is really, it was really sweet. It was really. Was so is that something you're thinking of incorporating into your clinical practice or what, what was know. your interest? There? I, I think that, you know, having breath work as another tool, a mm-hmm. very important tool, especially for those people who may be less inclined to be interested in using psychedelics mm-hmm. to have transpersonal or spiritual experiences. It's, it's nice to have a non-drug option. Yeah. And this is my second go around with holotropic breath work. Okay, cool. And it was the first time I did it was super profound and I was super skeptical going into yeah. it. Yeah. So to have a really powerful experience was reassuring that this is actually a really useful tool for some people. Yeah. yeah. But for me personally, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, it's pretty intense to get uh, trained in that, yeah. that kind of work. Right. And frankly, uh, not unlike some psychedelic experiences where people have these very demonstrative flailing around kind of stuff, like in the holotropic breath work that I've done so far, people are literally like screaming their heads off, yeah, thri- you know, thrashing around, yeah. and yeah, it's pretty intense. Do I want to do? That? I'm, a, I'm a psychologist. I sit in my <laughs> office and do talk therapy. You know, do I? Do I want to like? Yeah, you know, a lot of hands-on stuff. I don't do a lot of touch. Yeah, you know, so there's a lot of somatic body work that's yeah. being done. I'm like, mm, I don't know if that's my thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool though. I I believe in it. I'm a I'm a, I'm a it's a pretty powerful modality. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like there's a there's a, a theme that's coming to me that I kind of keep coming back to is like you know whatever we want to call it the the current paradigm of healthcare or is it ready for something like that? Let's say like and and I'm curious like do you have a sense of because you mentioned somatic and sort of like very expressive kind of perhaps cathartic release and these types of things. Mm-hmm. What's your sort of read on something like that? Is there resistance to more, let's call it spiritual, somatic, ecstatic types of modalities in healthcare writ large? Or I, I guess I just see like a, a, a tension perhaps between, you know, if we were to sort of like just kind of straw man, you know, CBT dominated, you know, healthcare system, or maybe that's a strong framing, but and then something that's like almost the complete opposite end of it, where it's very bottom up, it's very, you know, somatic, very expressive. Right. How do you see these worlds kind of, kind yeah, of that, mixing? In, in the more somatic, body oriented, more expressive, ecstatic movement, all that kind of stuff, that, that appeals to a certain type of person right but as we know i think one of the things that has helped the psychedelic medicine world march forward Mm -hmm. is the science yeah and people trust science yeah 
So I think what we are going to have is that it's really beautiful to have things like holotropic breathwork, non-drug psychedelic inducing state, you know, tools to use more like, so let's say for example, somebody trusts the medical system for better or for worse, (laughs) they trust the medical system and they get an FDA approved medication like MDMA and they have experience with a licensed therapist and it's all curated and held under that Western medical model. And maybe they do that a couple of times, or maybe they've had a few psychedelic experiences through an ayahuasca journey Mm -hmm. in Peru or a psilocybin journey on their own, you know, in their hometown or something, but they don't want to keep having those drug induced Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. experiences. They want to see what other options there are. And that is the perfect sort of segue to people who want to explore other ways of reaching a state of being connected to their bodies and to themselves, to other people, to the world around them without having, without, I shouldn't say without having to use a drug, but without just, just having another Another non-drug way to do it. So I think they actually do dovetail quite nicely together. But to your point, yeah, absolutely. I think most people are like, what? Like, I don't like breathing. Like you're just, you're just making yourself hypoxic. Like you're just like changing your brain chemistry because you're breathing so hard. There's nothing psychedelic about that but i mean again i was skeptic and <laughs> i am a full believer now so to have those non-drug tools yeah. for those people who may may be scared to have a drug experience so try the holotropic breathwork sure. first yeah. or people who have had a number of psychedelic experiences yeah. and say well i don't want to keep trying that i want to try something yeah. new and different and that's that's been more my my path is like I, i've done the psychedelic drugs yeah. and you know it's really beautiful to see that your your own body yeah just by focusing on your breath in an intentional way can yeah. produce these divine spiritual yeah. awesome states of connectedness. So yeah, I think there's a place for it for sure. You just use the phrase of your own path. What what has been your path professionally, personally? How do you how do you define or describe yourself in this world and however you want to take that yeah. question? Yeah, I you know, I kind of came back to psychedelics probably about five years ago, right around the time that Michael Pollan's book came out. Mm-hmm. So Rick Doblin this morning mentioned, you know, the pollen effect, or he called Michael as the pollinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, that book, How to Change Your Mind, came out and reached a lot of people yeah. and certainly reached me. And somebody who has been in the field of mental health and addiction recovery for decades, knowing full well from my own personal experience when I was a kid, having mm-hmm. used a lot of psychedelics, mm-hmm. knowing that they had a profound impact on my life mm-hmm. as a kid for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. I knew that when this came back around through Michael Pollan's work, I was like, holy shit, there is really something to this yeah. because I've had a personal experience with it. And I know that used intentionally used in a healthy way, this mm-hmm. has real potential to help people. So it was really like a almost like a homecoming for me because I had profound experiences when I was a kid and to see it legitimized. Finally, I was like, wow, this is, so I dove right in having worked in the field of mental health at that point for over two decades in the addiction treatment world, in the mental health world. And knowing that certainly the tools that we have that I've been trained in that Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with, I, I believe in them. Mm -hmm. I believe there's a place for therapy and, all types of addiction treatment models that we have available, whether it's medications or yeah. traditional abstinence-based yeah. in terms of mental health treatments, like you mentioned CBT earlier, yeah. CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, psychodynamic yeah. therapy, psychoanalysis, yeah. also SSRIs, like all these tools for helping people with addictions or mental health are super important. Mm-hmm. 
are, are they are they lacking yeah they're lacking in some yeah. ways there's always ways to improve and this yeah. this psychedelic renaissance this this resurgence of science and interest is like i said personally and professionally it's really just dialed right in for me and i was like yeah. holy cow this is so perfect so i knew right away yeah that i wanted to become trained in psychedelic assisted yeah. psychotherapy so that i could be on the front lines to be ready and to go when mm -hmm. when it's go time to help yeah people. so i do do ketamine work in my office right now waiting for mdma mm -hmm. next year but that's how i came to it so yeah. personal experience when i was a kid yeah and then i really credit my use of psychedelics when i was a kid to being open to the message of recovery yeah when i got sober because i had a problem with addiction before the age of 20 and then also i credit psychedelics with being turned on to the world of the mind yeah and human yeah. relatedness yeah and knowing that there was more to the world than what we see with our eyes what right. we hear with our ears right and so I was ready to study psychology when I was finally sober and was able to pursue that, that career path. I say because of psychedelics. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So what's been your career journey? Where did it start? What kind of training did you do? Yeah. What does that look like over the course of your, your yeah. career? So I, like I said, I got sober when I was 20. I was, I had dropped out of the University of Vermont mm -hmm. because my grades were terrible. I was put on academic and disciplinary probation because mm -hmm. I was a terror, totally out of control. Like most college kids, I suppose, but I, I suppose quite a bit, quite a bit more because I was really getting into some serious trouble. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to drop out of UVM and went to treatment, went to rehab for six months. And a friend of mine was at Columbia University and mm -hmm. there was a backdoor way to get into Columbia University. So with a, a little less than a year's worth of credits under my belt from UVM, I transferred to Columbia. Mm -hmm. And in sobriety, I was able to complete my undergraduate degree in psychology at nice. Columbia. And I also was, like I said, I was in recovery. So I was starting to work in the addiction field and I yeah. wanted to get a license in alcohol and drug counseling, which I pursued. And at the same time, I applied to a doctoral program in psychology right. at Yeshiva University, mm -hmm. Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology, which is based up at Albert Einstein College of Medicine yeah. campus in Manhattan, in the Bronx. Right. Oh, in the Bronx. Yeah, in the Bronx. Yeah. So I got my undergraduate degree in psychology. And then I also went on beyond that to get a master's degree in psychopharmacology because oh, interesting. I really felt like. There was a lot to know about meds, uh -huh. like everybody and their cousin seemed to be on an SSRI yeah. or, or some sort of psychotropic medication. And I felt like I need to learn more about this because all my patients are coming in on different cocktails of medications. Right. And so I got an additional master's degree in psychopharmacology and I started working in an addiction treatment program. Mm -hmm. I was four or five years sober while I was in graduate school. Down in New York? Down in New York. Yeah. Uh, the Hazelden Foundation, it's called Hazelden Betty Ford now. Okay. So I worked there for seven years, first as, a, as an overnight uh, counselor, uh -huh. then a group counselor. And then I ran a physician education and training program for all the New York City area residency programs. They mm. would filter through Hazelden and, uh -huh. and we'd, we'd take them to groups and AA meetings and they'd have lectures by all the leading addiction medicine specialists. Yeah. So that was really formative for me both getting my doctoral degree and learning about how to teach people about addiction. You're, and you're also kind of, it, it strikes me as a very, like a mosaic of like the different parts of the, the space, if you will, right? Like you're interacting with physicians, you're working in a, in a treatment center, you're doing your own training in psychopharmacology. Like you're, you're into it. That's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. That's I, awesome. The, the personal side of it too. So I bring to my 
to my career, I bring my personal experience with addiction and recovery, mm -hmm. having also family members who have suffered with major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. So knowing what it's like to, to have that in the family, to live with addiction recovery, and then to work in the field from these various perspectives as an addictions counselor, mm -hmm. as a psychologist, as a person who's well trained and aware of the medical field around it yeah. and the psychopharmacology behind right. it. So I really do try to bring all those different perspectives to yeah. the work that I do with, with everybody, it, whether it's in um, teaching people or clinical practice or this kind of work with yeah. you, you, know, you trying to get the word out about how do we bring in this new paradigm of yeah. psychedelics in a healthy, responsible way right. and not sort of slam any doors or, you know, from my Twitter feed, like people love to step on each other's toes yeah. and there's a lot of fighting <laughs> going on. And, and I can get drawn into that, like the next person, totally. but I also try to offer nuance because yeah, yeah. behind everybody's strong stance and polarized opinion, there's also tremendous amount of agreement as long as we can bring our attention back yeah. to it. And it's difficult sometimes because people get you know stuck in the corners. Yeah. Is it the phrase, the narcissism of small differences? I think yeah. I may be butchering that, but it's like, you know, there's near uniform agreement on something and then the sliver of disagreement becomes the, the focus yeah, of it, yeah, which I think is like, I don't know. This is the first movement or industry or whatever we want to call it that I have paid like very close attention to. My previous work is not in finance or investment or in, in, in cannabis. You know, a lot of people come from cannabis and sort of have seen this sort of. And so I'm watching this and it just strikes me as very novel, very unique, very singular. I think that's a combination of the history of, of the compounds, their legal status, the shutdown, you know, in, in 1971, like the history there, the experience itself, like it, it strikes me as a very just singular domain that is like, unlike anything else. And so the strong opinions and the diversity of views, I feel like is a, it can be annoying and, 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 you know, prevent sort of connection, but it also kind of highlights all of the different crevices and pieces. You know, I recently wrote about the metaphor of the blind man and the elephant who sort of- Oh yeah, that was a great article. Like yeah. the ecosystem itself is almost undefinable because of the, the different ways you can approach it. For some, it might be a psychopharmacology piece. For some, it might be an investment or a drug development piece. For others, policy, others, spiritual, you know? And where do you land in, not as a, as a polarizing question, but just- what are you drawn to? What is like the, the part of the elephant that you're most sort of in contact with? It's a great question. I, I, I think of it as connective tissue in a way. Yeah, yeah. Some people have called me kind of a connector because I, I am on social media far too much probably, <laughs> but I meet a lot of people. That's how I met you. And I did a podcast down in Brooklyn last week with a comedian who I met who saw yeah. me on Twitter and liked my Twitter feed. And so I, I tend to find my role or what I'm drawn to as really finding ways that people are naturally connected mm. and somehow finding myself attuned to that or aligned with it. And it just seems that when attention is focused to the connective tissue, yeah, then there's, it's almost like, you know, everyone is touched in some way and mm -hmm. everybody can resonate in some way, mm -hmm. even with our differences of opinion. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I can be a provocateur in some, some ways. I know sometimes my online presence, at least in the past has been somewhat of an antagonist, mm -hmm. like really pushing people's buttons. But I've met some really fascinating people live in person from sort of pushing the boundaries yeah. of, of some of those polarizing opinions, not so much to purposely antagonize people just sure. for kicks and giggles, but really just to get people to express very clearly what 
what their position is yeah. and then finding like, okay, so these are the edges of what people's, yeah. you know, opinions are based right. on. And that's really, really helpful because once you know the details of the polarized opinions, you can, yeah. you can actually, it, it offers you, you know, different pieces to the puzzle to, yeah. to connect everything together. Yeah. So I think that's, I really, you know, I really do try to pay attention to the connective tissue, the elephant metaphor with the different parts. There's some, there's probably some metaphor that we can think of that yeah. like touching the elephant itself sends a signal yeah. <laughs> to all the people touching all the other yeah, parts. Exactly. It's like, oh, I think we're all connected here somehow. <laughs> and that's what I try to try yeah. to focus on. Cool. What does your current practice look like? You're up in Vermont and it seems like you have a focus on addiction and recovery treatment, but just curious what the the current treatment looks like within the current paradigm of conventional healthcare. Yeah. What what sense. I do as a as a clinical psychologist is very traditional kind of clinical mm -hmm. practice. People come to see me for depression, anxiety, bipolar, mm -hmm. trauma, various relationship issues, stress, grief, mm -hmm. anything you can think of that people might be needing some help with, needing a sounding board, a professional they can trust that can help, you know, ask the right questions mm -hmm. and provide a safe container, safe space to process whatever they need to process and get some direction and maybe some su suggestions to help them do better or feel better. Within that, I see about 50% of my patients have some sort of addiction mm -hmm. related issue, whether it's sex addiction or gambling, alcohol, drug use problems. Food is a big one, food mm -hmm. addiction. And the other 50% is just general practice. And what I've been able to do is to incorporate my experience and knowledge in the psychedelic world. So people are hearing more and more about psychedelics. Everywhere you look, there's some new study or new mm -hmm. article in the New York Times mm -hmm. talking about breakthrough treatment psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so people, as you know, are getting access to these medicines, drugs all over the place somehow. And they are curious about how can I have a safe and yeah. therapeutic experience, whether it's personal use at home or with friends yeah. or at a retreat center somewhere yeah. underground. And so to be a person who is familiar with that, I can do consultation with mm -hmm. people, not promoting the use yeah. of psychedelics necessarily. Like you need to try this to right. heal your trauma. Right. But people come to me and say, how can I have a safe experience? Yeah. What do you recommend? And I can provide education and information, help them prepare for that journey. Or if they've had a psychedelic experience, a positive or negative one, mm -hmm. to go to a practitioner who doesn't judge and understands and they can process that with a therapist, yeah. a licensed therapist. Some people find that that is super helpful. So I do do consultations mm -hmm. with people looking to, you know, tap into that resource for yeah. them. And then also I do some ketamine work yeah. in my office, starting to incorporate ketamine for certain people if it's yeah. the right tool for them. And I've seen some promising results with ketamine. So I'm a believer that ketamine can be helpful. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to when MDMA gets yeah. uh, approved for yeah. the next, you know, psychedelic tool. You're hitting on sort of this dynamic that I think is such a central piece of the elephant, right? As the commercial development and the academic work and the scientific work is, gets published and proliferates out through the media, more and more people are kind of hearing the siren call, right? There's, it's piquing the interest of the general public. And yet, because of the current drug policy and situation from a legal perspective, it's not accessible through those above ground means, right? And so all of the enthusiasm, energy, promising scientific results, 
articles in the New York Times or what have you is fueling demand that cannot be met, except in the means you just described, retreats, underground, personal use, et cetera. And you describe sort of the way that you navigate that by supporting, educating, harm reduction, it sounds like. But I talk to other people who, who see that that is like a major liability, right? Like just this dynamic itself could lead to, I don't know, more law enforcement involvement in underground scenes or what have you. But then on the other hand, and this is kind of going back to this piece I wrote recently, the healthcare system that we have is not all it's cracked up to be, right? There are challenges, whether that is insurance reimbursement or iatrogenic harm or access to care that is not a perfect scenario either, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's almost like two competing failure modes Mm -hmm. on the one hand Mm -hmm. and two means of access, you might say, or involvement, right? And, And some will have a more buttoned up medical approach and others will have maybe a broader array of, of options there from retreat. I'm not sure if I'm making any sense or if there's even a question here, but I, I just wanted to see if, if that sort of dynamic resonates with you. Like, how do you think about that? What are the pitfalls of either domain? Yeah. Or what's the connective tissue between yeah. those yeah, I mean, pieces? The, the connective tissue for me is that you know, there's no wrong door, mm. that they're, all paths are, are viable paths. Mm. And also all paths could lead to harm. Yeah. Right. So there isn't some like harm free zone. Yeah. Whether it's the traditional medical system, which in fact is broken in some very profound ways. Right. Or to do some sort of underground treatment where you're not sure because it's not a regulated body and there aren't any agreed upon standards of care. Yeah. And everybody practices differently. You know, if you're going to be in the hands of somebody who doesn't practice in an ethical or mm-hmm. safe way. You know, we know, for example, that the medical system, I believe the last numbers I saw were, I think 125,000 people a year die from like getting a wrong prescription. Mm -hmm. So being prescribed the wrong drug by mistake kills 125,000 people a year. Yeah. That's horrendous. Yeah. That's just an example of how the medical system isn't a perfect system, no matter how much regulation and how many safety protocols and how many ethical guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. All this stuff is in place. There's still going to be problems. There's going to, still going to be bad actors right. or mistakes are going to be made. Yeah. So we can't necessarily think that there's some way to institute the utmost safety protocols mm-hmm. in the psychedelic world, whether it's the medicalized psychedelic model or the underground model or whatever's happening now. Mm-hmm. The, the other connective tissue, which is really important, I don't think it gets enough press, so to speak, doesn't get talked about enough, is community. Mm. So you know that I started the Psychedelic Society of Vermont Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, which is a group of healthcare practitioners from Vermont and around New England. Mm -hmm. So we've built community among healthcare providers, real deep personal connections, but also professional awareness, professional connections to to build that community, to to teach each other, to learn from each other, Mm -hmm. and to sort of move this along safely. And there's parallel psychedelic societies yeah. happening all over the yeah. place. There's the global psychedelic society, yeah. which you know about uh, Mike Margulies and jazz. They, yeah. they created that, which we're happy to be a member of. They've been doing some great work very recently trying to get their yeah. systems in place, global psychedelic society. So psychedelic societies from all over the globe, right. we're talking from Eastern Europe to even some um, Arab countries, Middle Eastern countries, uh, all the way into Asia yeah. and like global psychedelic communities that can be a container for people. Mm-hmm. Again, there's going to be 
bad actors in any of these in any areas. of these domains. Yeah. But I think the more we sort of keep an eye on community, yeah, and find those safe people and find those safe groups where we can talk about our experiences and feel like this is a trusting, safe place where I can process, yeah, my vulnerabilities. That's a huge, huge piece of this whole sure psychedelic movement. Whether it's professional psychedelic societies yeah. or communities popping up like mushrooms, yeah. uh, you know, all over the place to to talk about experience. And I've been to some psychedelic society group meetings that aren't for professionals. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are kind of wacky. Yeah. And, you know, some of them are really cool. Like yeah. it really depends on totally the chemistry between yeah. the different people who show up. Yeah. And so it's not a, not a perfect thing, but I and think the we, same group can be wacky week to week or month yeah. to month. Yeah, exactly. It depends on who shows up. Exactly. Yeah. Different members come and go. And yeah, but I think community is part of that connective tissue. It's a sure. huge piece of this, whether yeah. you're a healthcare practitioner or just somebody who's interested in psychedelics whether you're 18 or yeah. 80 years old it doesn't matter so i i tend to view your work as an educator you know I, I think just the way that you engage you know whether it's on twitter or elsewhere as an educator and it sounds like that is part of the big piece of the vermont psychedelic society can you talk a little bit about how you're engaging with local providers in and around the area and what that sort of group looks like what that community looks like how you're facilitating learning in there whether you're seeing growth in in that capacity Mm -hmm. i have a sense that you know like the general public catching wind of this Mm -hmm. the therapeutic community however that's defined is also Mm -hmm. catching wind and sort of saying huh this is interesting how can i get involved how is that sort of structured or how do you facilitate onboarding people into this space in your way with with your society of Vermont. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, I can give you a, a very specific example of mm. that. My mom has had a benign brain tumor that's grown back twice. She's had it removed twice. Her neurologist, the uh, community neurologist in my town, has been working with my mom for a while. And she heard through social media that I was involved in the Psychedelic Society of Vermont and just interested in psychedelics. And she as a neurologist sees a lot of patients with trauma. Mm-hmm. And she's heard about MDMA for trauma. So she came to me and said, well, I'd love to pick your brain. Like, what do you know oh, about cool. this? So we scheduled a time to meet in my office. And she, lo and behold, just a couple of days ago, she applied for the MAPS training. No way. She wants really? to get trained in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So that's just a very concrete, yeah. very recent example of a local neurologist who still has a lot of stigma around yeah. psychedelics and stuff. Yeah. But she heard about the data coming out about MDMA for PTSD, and she wants to get trained. Mm-hmm. So that's just a very concrete example of a home-based kind of networking opportunity yeah. to sort of help guide people who are interested from a healthcare perspective. And that's why we founded the Psychedelic Society of Vermont is to really, anybody who's interested in this field can come to our monthly meetings uh-huh. and we can talk about the latest trends, the latest research that's coming out, the latest hype or scandal, yeah. whatever it is, and really just process these things with each other. And it's People from all healthcare disciplines, yeah. even students who are getting their master's degree or bachelor's degree yeah. in mental health disciplines, yeah. even some actually chaplains who do yeah. palliative medicine work in, yeah. in hospitals. And the other piece of it, I think, is educating not just healthcare professionals, but educating the public. There is still so much stigma, mm-hmm. whether it's healthcare professionals or the lay people. I was just with a friend of mine who lives in Denver here, and we used to party together when I was a kid because he's my oldest friend. But, you know, him like looking at me as somebody who's trying to help bring psychedelics into the world in a safe and effective way. He's just 
scratches his head. Yeah. He's, he's talking about widespread panic and fish shows. And, you know, I went to a couple of Grateful Dead shows yeah. when I was younger. And so he, his association, and he's like, he's a, you know, intelligent guy, yeah. very, very yeah. with it in the world, but he still just like shakes his head. Yeah. You know? I was just like, no way. Yeah. Like, people are using these, you know, therapeutically. Interesting. So there's still so much stigma out there yeah. when it comes to this. So really educating the public. Yeah. That recreational use is fine. People yeah. can use it recreationally safely. You yeah. know, ceremonial use is fine. Yeah. Clinical use is fine. All these different ways to use it, they're, they're, they're okay as long as we're sort of talking about it openly and yeah. understanding it. And also working on drug policy mm -hmm. reform in Vermont. So educating legislators. That's mm -hmm. a huge piece of it. You know, really educating our legislators across the country. In Vermont, we have a bill to remove all criminal penalties for psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get Vermont up to speed with Oregon and Colorado and other locales who have decriminalized uh, some psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. We started with psilocybin. We had 36 sponsors on, our, on our, one of our oh, wow. house bills. Yeah. We also have a large number of senators in Vermont who mm -hmm. are supportive of removing all criminal penalties mm -hmm. for psilocybin and looking at the facilitated therapeutic use of psilocybin. Yeah. yeah. So I've been trying to educate legislators as well lawmakers as well, yeah, as well. so i testified actually this past spring and hopefully we'll get some traction next next year yeah yeah, yeah. well i'm two states over in maine oh yeah so i i wanted to make it to the meetup that you had last last summer i think and it's coming up in september is that right yeah the so we we put on a conference last year on the solstice it's actually a year ago where we had a summer solstice psychedelic conference and it was fantastic we had rick doblin come mm -hmm. we had leonard picard come we had Carolyn Dorson from Rutgers was there. Victor Cabral from Fluence was there. Mm -hmm. Ben Sessa came. So we had a tremendous lineup. Matt, Matt Johnson from mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins. I can go on and on. So it was a great conference. And we're putting on another one, believe it or not. And oh, Natalie Ginsburg, Ginsburg yeah. with, with MAPS. She actually, her parents live in Stowe. Oh, cool. So to have that connection with her and nice. with MAPS. She was able to get Rick to come again last year, and then he's going to come again this year. Great. Julie Holland is coming. Roz Watts is coming over from, oh, cool. from England. Ben's going to come back again. All the way from Australia. Well, he actually didn't. I don't think he moved to Australia. He's okay. working for he's them just doing, to try to help yeah, okay. them get up to speed with okay. their new legislation. Oh, cool. But I don't think he moved there. And he's here, so I hopefully see him yeah. when he's here. So we have another conference coming up. I don't know if we're going to do it every year. It's kind of a lot to put together. Yeah. I could imagine. Not 10,000 or 12,000 people like yeah. we are here, <laughs> but 300 people and, and it's my hometown and yeah. it means a lot to me because I used a lot of psychedelics in that town yeah. and to come and just sort of put on a, a professional psychedelic conference yeah. is really, uh, two years in a row is really fantastic. So that's happening on the fall equinox. Oh, cool. And that's September 22nd and 23rd. And we have uh, Brian and Bill Richards coming from Sunstone. Nice from Maryland and even an underground practitioner who's going to come and share her experience doing work underground. Cool. To talk about like the liability and yeah. you know, putting stuff out there. I think it's time that it's, it's okay to come out and talk about these things more and, you know, risk the possibility of legal action. You know, people aren't out there as far as I know in my community, they're out to do harm. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so we're all sort of on the same team trying to figure out how can we offer this to people right. safely and, and legally. But if, if it's not legal yet, right. it will be. Yeah. And so that's what we're just trying to do very carefully. Yeah. So yeah, that's going to be September 22nd and 23rd of cool. this year, 2023. And, yeah. th and that is a provider focused kind yeah. of meetup. And yeah. A few, few people who aren't providers. We have legislators coming because mm -hmm. we want to educate legislators. Yep. We have some attorneys coming. Yep. We have some people who are you know interested in psychedelics and maybe 
from some other professional disciplines coming and but mostly for healthcare practitioners mainly because it's expensive and we're offering CEUs. Okay. And so the layperson, the public, they yeah. don't need CEUs right, and it's right. it's kind of expensive. So we do want to recognize the broader community. Yeah. But it is sort of geared more towards healthcare. Yeah. yeah. That's that struck me as unique. That would be a cool gathering of people who are working in this in a professional capacity, sharing ideas, trading know-how. Yeah. And and also it's a huge like going back to community. It's huge. It's so important. Last year, our conference was so successful, I think, because everybody was in the same room mm-hmm. for two days, yeah. listening to speaker after speaker in yeah. the same room. There yeah. weren't breakout sessions. Right, right, so right. everybody was there yeah. and they wanted to hear. And even the speakers stayed to hear the other speakers. Yeah. So that all the speakers were in the room listening to their fellow speakers. Yeah. And you know, in between sessions, we're all like in the same room. We're out in the grass having lunch together. Like literally right outside the, the I know I saw room. pictures on online. I was super jealous. Yeah. It looked like a lot of fun. It was so cool. And it was really all about community, like yeah. actually getting to know one another and what what yeah. people's interests are and why they're here. Yeah. And really just like hanging out in, yeah. in a very healthy and fun, fun way. So hopefully we're gonna recreate some of that again this year. Yeah, cool. If we look forward let's say five years from now, how do you see the world? What are you excited about? What do you think the landscape from like a legal and a access commercial perspective looks like? How how do you you see? I think five years from now, there's still going to be some hiccups. I don't think Mm -hmm. we're through with the scandals. Rick Doblin this morning was talking about novel psychedelic compounds being Mm -hmm. created. So people are, you know, even in the, in the current pharmaceutical world, they, they do combine drugs. So there, for example, there's a drug called Contrave mm-hmm. for people who overeat. Mm. It's an appetite suppressant mm-hmm. type drug. It's a combination of naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker drug used in medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Oh, it's also used for alcohol use disorder. Yeah. So it's an opioid blocker. It basically blocks some of the reinforcing effects of, of dopamine or, right. or op- op- the opioid system in a way. So it just sort of diminishes the pleasure response a little bit. Right. So, and that's it, used in medication-assisted treatment, treatment yeah. right? Yeah, It's Vivitrol or, or yeah. Revia, the oral form of it. So they combine that with Wellbutrin, Bupropion. Now, Bupropion is a medication that's been used for all kinds of things. Yeah. Depression, anxiety, smoking Pain, cessation. Neuropathy, ADD, right? Neurop- yeah. uh, not neuropathy. I don't think it's used for neuropathy. Oh, I'm thinking of... Cymbalta. I'm thinking of gabapentin. Gabapentin, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they combine naltrexone with Wellbutrin, right? Or Bupropion. So you have a combo product. Now, what about, you know, can't we've heard about candy flipping and yeah, hippie flipping yeah, and kitty yeah. flipping. So are they going to come out with compounds where you've got a combination of LSD and MDMA yeah. or psilocybin and MDMA? So I, I think that's going to be interesting to see over yeah. the next few years. 5-MeO-DMT, 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine mm-hmm. is a compound that I've been in a training program to learn more about. Oh, cool. I'll have an experience actually down in Mexico in, in December Nice with... But uh, that that compound, very, very, very powerful psychedelic, yeah. unlike any other psychedelic. It would yeah. be interesting to see. I know Beckley's doing some work with yeah. 5-MeO. Yeah. Very, very impressive to see that work being yeah. done. So I'm super excited for that compound. But I think there's still lots of growing pains. In five years, it's hard to sort of figure out like where are things going to be? Because I think we're going to have, we're going to be where we are now with ketamine, with MDMA yeah. in five years. Interesting. So ketamine's led the way yep. and there's going to be a proliferation. It's probably going to be 2,000 or 2,500 MDMA clinics or more in five years. Yep. And I think in five years, we're going to see 
probably maybe we're going to be within a year of having psilocybin FDA approved. Mm -hmm. Maybe 2027, it'll be approved. Mm -hmm. 2026, 2028. So we're going to start to see the rollout of psilocybin clinics in a medical model. What I'm hoping also in five years is that there's wider acceptance of the non-medical version of getting access to these experiences for people through state legislation and local whatever's going on in Oregon, Colorado, the kinds of legislation or the kinds of uh, policy changes that allows people to experiment and explore these substances in healthy ways. You mentioned education. I think that's, yeah, it's a huge part of what this whole movement should be about is like making sure people get the information that they need because they're going to have access to these drugs and they're going to be having experiences. So I don't really like the term harm reduction so much. I know mm-hmm. it's super popular. And I think Carl Hart has called into question the, the terminology harm reduction. Oh, interesting. But I think if we were to s- replace the harm reduction with just education, education yeah. and, you know, sharing experiences, yeah. uh, safe practices, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Is, it's I think it's the word harm, because yeah. when you have harm reduction, you're, you're conjuring up the you're idea kind of harm. The negative. So you're yeah. somehow you're propagating or you're continuing to push this idea that drugs are harmful yeah drug use is harmful so we need to reduce their harm yeah which is true so it's an accurate term but again if you're perpetuating this idea of harm yeah you know are we doing a disservice so i think education safe practices that's a that's a huge part of i think what hopefully will expand dramatically over the next five years so i have another theory and you'd be a good person to speak with this about given your your training and role as a psychologist we have a handful of different compounds that we know of right now that are in use in some capacity that are some stage of the drug development process, some stage of legalization or decriminalization. Who knows how much is coming in terms of the novel drugs and combinations or what have you. But what about the innovation, let's say, in psychotherapeutic dynamics or approaches or frameworks or modalities? I'm not even quite sure. My mom is a psychologist. So I know enough to be dangerous, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. But for example, we mentioned CBT and ACT and psychodynamics, psychoanalysis. Internal family systems. Internal family systems, exactly. Somatic experiencing, these types of... Is, is this a platform for innovation in different approaches or combinations of these things? Because it strikes me that all of these different modalities or, or types of approaches seem to come out of like an individual's like experience as a provider, mm-hmm. as a therapist, mm-hmm. their learnings and they're iterating on it. And, you know, Richard Swartz, for example, with IFS, you know, he's talked about his experience of like, there's an aha moment where there's a family system within an individual, mm-hmm. right? And that's an area that's not talked about in like terms of innovation. Mm-hmm. Talk about technology and drug development as innovation, but I'm convinced that there's a lot of room for exploration and tinkering and com- combining whether it's different approaches of spirituality or meditation or contemplative practices with somatics like am i making sense like yeah. do you how do you think about the role of innovation or the potential for different emerging paradigms to come right. within the therapeutic framework or modality yeah i think that you know just the, on the cynical side of things and i've tweeted about this I've seen what's happened with medication-assisted treatment in the addiction world for opioid use disorder. And what happens a lot, and even with the traditional pharmacology for mental health conditions, that we have, as a culture, sort of gone towards the pill as the cure. 
and any kind of psychotherapeutic or lifestyle change intervention is sort of relegated to some very difficult, inaccessible, mm-hmm. you know, too hard to reimburse, too mm-hmm, hard to, mm-hmm. you know, do. Yeah. I'd rather just take a pill and fix everything. And so the cynical side of me says, well, is, are psychedelic therapies going to be any different? Are they, we're we're yeah. promoting this idea that like this is the perfect combination of meds and therapy. And, you know, what we've seen, even with what we're seeing with ketamine, you know, there's a lot of practitioners who just administer IV yeah. ketamine and that's it. There's no therapy. Or if you happen to have a therapist that you're already working with, great. Keep seeing them. You know, that kind of thing. And so are we going to see that? The cynical side of me says, are we going to see that with psychedelics? But to your point on the more hopeful side of things, I would say that two things. One is that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy will continue to refine itself Mm -hmm. and become its own type of therapy. Mm -hmm. And that people coming from all different types of therapies, whether it's the ones you've mentioned or some other background, they will sort of learn the ways of how to best sit with people Mm -hmm. and provide the kind of healing an appropriate presence and care when people are undergoing a psychedelic experience or preparing for it or, re- or integrating it mm-hmm. afterwards. So I believe there's going to be a continued refinement of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy being its own psychotherapy model. Mm-hmm. And I also think just having come from the Groff holotropic mm-hmm. breathwork experience, I do think that Stan Groff's work in transpersonal psychology mm-hmm. may see a resurgence Interesting. in terms of it being its own paradigm, mm-hmm. working with people in these non-ordinary states mm-hmm. of consciousness. So transpersonal psychology might see resurgence in mm-hmm. interest and getting incorporated more. But yeah, it's really an eclectic kind of thing. I think yeah. as a practitioner myself, I'm somebody who doesn't adhere to one yeah. School of thought, one approach, whether it's CBT or psychodynamic or IFS or mm-hmm. acceptance commitment therapy. I've been trained in lots of modalities. Mm-hmm. I was originally trained in the more psychoanalytic model, psychodynamic model. Mm-hmm. But I think the more therapists can see the similar to what we said about nuance, you know, yeah. polarized, like, yeah, the more we can see the connective tissue sure. between all these different therapies. And as therapists or people working in this space can bring the strengths and leave aside the weaknesses of each model, yeah. then we have a, a good crack at sort of bringing this in in a safe way. So the non-pharmacotherapy tools that we have are super important because mm-hmm. even Rick Doblin said it this morning, the psychedelics, the drugs themselves are just a tool. Yeah. The work is in community. The work yeah. is in personal development. The work is in therapy. The work is in connecting with nature. That's yeah. where all the work gets done on a day-to-day basis. I wonder if, we'll see a specialization of like therapists who let's say just for example, kind of the way that current trials are set up, you know, there's, there's preparation, there's the experiential dosing, and then there's integration afterwards. It just seems that people might be more drawn to sitting with people during the experience rather than working with them after the fact. And so maybe there's a role for, for folks who want to focus or specialize in, preparation, integration, and a place for people who want to specialize in, you know, the presence of, of being with somebody. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of getting too analytical with it, but it seems like people have different strengths and different interests. And, and, and I wondered, is that something that, that's crossed your mind, like kind of a, a specialization within the, the journey, so to speak, and, and how people might fit in? And if there's like unique training or specialization that can happen in, in that? That's definitely uh, that's a tough one to to think about in advance right now. So niche specializations within mm-hmm. the psychedelic therapy 
framework, whether that's specialization and integration, specialization mm -hmm. in holding space during the administration sessions, mm -hmm. specialization in preparation. One thing I can say is that I know, talking to my colleagues, that that is, people are talking about that. People are saying like, I don't really want to sit with people for eight hours. Yeah. That's not my thing. Other yeah. people are like, I love sitting with yeah. people for six, yeah. hours, six to eight hours. I just like being in, in the presence of that healing work and whatever is emerging. And so I think it's going to, you're, you're onto something there, mm. there. It's going to happen naturally. Some people just want to prescribe and be like, I want to be involved as the prescriber yeah. and that's it. You yeah. know, and I want the therapist to do their thing. I'm somebody who, like you said before, I like to have expertise or at least good, strong skills in the drug side of mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. the therapy side of things, the yeah. community side of things, right. the education side of things. So I would, I hope my colleagues, this sort of cross fertilization, this cross disciplinary kind yeah. of thing is then we can sort of move in and out of these different spaces. Maybe someone likes to hold space, you know, once a month right. or right. a couple of times a year and the rest of the time they just like to do education. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's a lot of room for specialization. Yeah. And, and I also know sort of related to your question, there are actual doctoral programs, I think popping up now and specializing in, you can get a doctorate. I think in psychedelic studies or something. Interesting. So yeah. that's something that's we're going to see a progression. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Pretty wild times. We're yeah. Like, yeah it's exciting, isn't it? It's really exciting. It's it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I kind of pinch myself that this is like the world we're living in, and yeah. we're having this conversation, and there's twelve thousand people that have convened here in Denver. So yeah, and for me to be able to speak freely about it, I mean, I I I've had like a personal history with psychedelics mm -hmm. when I was a kid, and I got into a lot of trouble and. Now to come full circle and to yeah. be able to talk openly about it, something Carl Hart and even Rick Doblin said this morning is like, you know, to be able to speak openly about our experiences and not be afraid of mm -hmm. recrimination or some sort of punitive action is yeah. really it's it's so it's like it makes me almost want to weep. It's been because it's something that I've had for a long time, like yeah. not, you know, can't really talk about it. Yeah. It's not really, yeah. you know, you're just some, you know, LSD tripping yeah. you know, hippie, blah, blah, blah. It's not real. It's not. And now you can actually talk about it legitimately yeah. and, and share experiences. So it's very heartwarming. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Dr. Rick Barnett, I appreciate you coming on the trip report podcast. Where can, where can folks find you? Well, you know, on Twitter <laughs> at D R R I C K B A R N E T dot. Oh yeah. Just at Dr. Rick Barnett. And I'm sure that'll be in the, in the show notes, but show yeah, notes, that's, yeah. I'm super active on Twitter yeah. and social media and people reach out and DM me all the time. It's fine. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's how this started. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Kula Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.